Well, let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to Revelation chapter 2. And this evening we will be looking at the third of the seven churches, the church of Pergamon. Let's begin by reading verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against with them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. As we look at each of the seven churches individually here on Wednesday evenings, we are in a vital portion of the book of Revelation. A portion of this particular letter that is often, I believe, overlooked. It is second only to the last two chapters of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, speaking of the new heaven and the new earth that I think is neglected even more in many of the studies of this particular letter. We can learn a lot by understanding the dynamics of these seven churches if we would simply listen to what the Lord Jesus has to say to each of the seven churches, I believe that we can learn uh, immensely uh, and grow uh, significantly in our relationship with him. Again, this is Jesus Christ addressing seven individual churches that actually existed at the time in which this letter was written. And as we are making our way through Asia Minor, we started in Ephesus, we moved then to Smyrna. Tonight we are in Pergamum. Now if you have the King James or the New King James, it was known at that time as Pergamos. We have archaeology that now tells us that Pergamum was a, uh, the actual name for this city. It's one of the updates to our text. The same city, just known by two different names. Again, we have the same pattern that we find within each of these uh, particular addresses. Jesus addresses the church, and then there is an approval, there is an accusation, and then there is an admonishment where Christ will address an issue that he finds within that church. And he will call upon that church to repent of that issue, or he will remove himself from that church and it no longer will be his church. Now in that being said, I can identify for you this this evening what the issue was in Pergamum very quickly. 
The issue was the issue of compromise. This church was known as the compromising church. And as we look at this church, we are going to discover how they compromised and why it was detrimental to them and why it is detrimental to us today. Let me just read a few quick quotes from various pastors warning us about the sin of compromise. John MacArthur stated, Now compromise is the point at which you sell your conviction. Compromise is the point at which you sell out your ideal or point which you stop obeying God. Compromise is the abandonment of principle to gain some end. Another pastor went on to write, frankly, not persecution, but this kind of compromise that we see here in the letter to Pergamos is the fastest way to destroy the church's life and testimony. Even C.H. Spurgeon at his time stated this, compromise is very popular today, he said, this is over a hundred years ago, but the Bible is the most uncompromising book and the fear of the Lord is a most uncompromising principle. Greg Laurie put it in a very simple, but I think uh, masterful way. Compromise is like trying to drive down the middle of the road. It is only a matter of time until an accident happens. Another pastor wrote in his book, compromise is so subtle that it takes us in before we even realize what is happening. Different pastors warning against the sin of compromise. Now you may be asking yourself, what does that sin look like? And what am I compromising that is causing this sin? One wrote it this way, and I like the way they put it to help us identify what this compromise looks like. Compromise involves a blending the qualities of two different things or conceding principles. While believers should cooperate in society as much as they can, they must avoid any alliance partnership, participation that may lead to immoral practices. There can be no compromise between loyalty to Christ and sinful pleasure or idol worship or sexual immorality. Christians may differ in some areas, but there is no room for heresy and moral impurity. Don't tolerate sin by bowing to the present I'm sorry, by bowing to the pressure to be open-minded. Let me read that last phrase again. Don't tolerate sin by bowing to the pressure to be open-minded. And in our text this evening, we're going to find a church that found itself in a culture that was pressuring them to compromise. And I believe that the historical value of the particulars discovered in our text will help us understand that culture and allow us to understand why some would compromise within it. As one wrote concerning this, Dr. John Wolverd, he said, compromise with worldly morality and pagan doctrine was prevalent in the church, especially by the third century when Christianity became popular. So compromise with pagan morality and the departure from biblical faith soon corrupted the fabric of the church. And that's what we're going to see. 
We're going to see a church in the city of Pergamum that compromised. We are going to see and uh, learn about the culture of that city to help us understand why they were pressured in doing so. So let us begin again with our passage and let's look at verse 12. And to the angel, that is simply a messenger, it could be an actual angel or the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So we begin with the address, how Jesus introduces himself to this particular church as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, has anyone noticed something very interesting about the manner in which each of these churches are addressed? It is subtle, I'll give you that, but if you look at it closely, there is something unique about the address to these churches that is so different than the addresses to churches in our culture today. Here in our town, the town of Algonquin, Carpentersville, Dundee, we can only imagine how many churches occupy these three or four towns. Can't we? In fact, I don't even know what the current number is. But years ago, it was close to 237 churches. It is interesting to me that when these letters are written to these cities, and this was a city, it had close to 350,000 people He addresses the church in a singular manner. The church in Pergamum. He didn't see a a variety of different gatherings in different buildings. He saw a church, right? Which leads me once again to understand that the body of Christ is a very large body, isn't it? It is bigger than just our particular church. It is vastly bigger than that. And those who claim to follow Christ, those who claim Christianity, would associate themselves with the body of Christ. Now, you and I know that there are variants, great variants, in between these, correct? That not all churches are the same, and not all churches today believe the same things. There are great variants. But Jesus saw it as an individual, most likely because it was a singular group within the entire city, starting off in a very, you know, elementary way. It was a new beginning of sorts. But he addresses it as a church. And he sees that these and the individuals in the church, some were doing it the right way and some were not. But he addresses it as the church. Which reminds me again that Jesus is the head of the body of Christ, right? And he is the one that is in charge of cleansing his house. And he's going to do just that. For judgment begins in the house of the Lord, the word tells us. And he sees what goes on in every uh, facet of it. And now again, we know that there are many variants There are many different styles of churches. There are many different denominations of churches. But those who claim Jesus Christ, the world associates with Christ. Now, are they actually part of his church? Are they actually part of his sheep? It all depends. But here, it was an individual group. 
It was a group of believers. And here we find some doing the right thing, but others were compromising amongst them. And Jesus addresses them accordingly. The city of Pergamum was one of the beautiful cities of Asia Minor. And they were always in competition with Ephesus and Smyrna to be the crown jewel of the region of Asia Minor. It was an absolute beautiful city that was known as the religious epicenter and the epicenter for knowledge within that region of Asia Minor. When it came to religion, it was one of the first cities awarded by the Roman Empire allowed to build a temple to Caesar Augustus himself. There in Pergamum was the large throne celebrating Zeus's victory over the Titans. And in Pergamum, we also found that there was the temple of uh, Aclopleos, the god of healing, that was represented by a snake wrapped around a staff. That temple was so prominent that many from all over the region came for healing purposes. The superstition was that within this temple, to Aclopletus, was the ability to be healed because the temple itself you would walk into and there was no windows within it whatsoever. It was very dark, cool, and moist. The reason being is that because it held a very specific uh, occupant, it was filled with snakes, tamed snakes. You remember the old movie Indiana Jones uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark? And they opened the tomb, and there on the floor it was just filled with snakes. And they couldn't enter the Egyptian tomb without first dispersing the snakes. Well, these people traveled long distance to come in, to lie down, and to sleep at night on the floor with the snakes, hoping that one of the snakes would slither by them or over them and heal them of their illnesses. How's that? Aren't you glad for progressive medical treatment? Okay. But that is exactly what happened here. One wrote this. A archaeologist wrote this. Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. The temple there was, uh, there were filled with tamed snakes. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tamed and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground which, they, which he lay. The touch of the snake uh, was held to be the touch of the God himself, and the touch was held to bring health and healing to the individual. So religion was prevalent. The epicenter of pagan religion was known to be Pergamum. But along with that, Pergamum was also known in the region of Asia Minor for its library. It had one of the most vast libraries anywhere in Asia Minor with over 200,000 volumes to be looked at. So very vast in religion, very vast in knowledge, and also very vast in politics. It was awarded 
the location of Caesar Augustus' temple because of its loyalty to the Roman Empire emperor himself. And lastly, it had industry. For they made, they were famous for manufacturing a parchment called Pergama. That's easy enough to remember. And this was the foundation of this city. And I believe those characteristics allude to us, give us understanding of why these Christians were pressured into compromise. And I think we're going to find it quite fascinating how similar it is to our circumstances today, especially in a city like the city of Chicago. Let's go on and take a look at this because I believe it will map out for itself. Jesus then introduces himself as the sharp two-edged sword. Again, referring back to Revelation 1.16 in one of the manners in which he was described in his right hands he held the seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then in the book of Hebrews, we also are given this phrase concerning the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He was coming to judge with his word that was like a two-edged sword. It was going to be his word that was going to discern the compromise that was taking place there in Pergamum. He was going to divide the people, knowing and seeing their hearts and knowing and seeing what they are doing and how they are occupying themselves. It is interesting that he identified himself in such a way for Pergamum because they were so loyal to the emperor of Rome, they were one of the only cities in the Asia Minor region that was allowed to carry out capital punishment in and of itself. And that was signified by a sword that stood outside its justice system And it showed that they had the right of capital punishment. Now Jesus introduces himself in that exact same way, stating that ultimately he is the ultimate judge of all things. That he holds life in the balance. That he is the one that is capable of judging because of his ability to discern the heart of man. And as we see the address then move to the approval, we move to Revelation 2.13, if you look there with me. He says, I know where you dwell. He is completely familiar, that is Jesus, is completely familiar with the city in which they are currently in. And he describes it as where Satan's throne is. And he goes on to say, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He labels the city undoubtedly the throne of Satan because of its notoriety to be the epicenter of all pagan religions. 
Not only did we have the emperor himself claiming to be a deity in and of himself and demanding loyalty from his subjects, but they also went as far as the healing powers of Aesculapius. And then you have, of course, Zeus, who was being worshipped, and he literally sat on a throne there in his temple. Um, If you've ever been to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., if you've ever seen it for yourself, I, I tell you... Uh, when I first stood at the bottom of those steps and I looked up, I couldn't believe how enormous that was. And then as I climbed up the steps and I looked, I couldn't believe it. Well, they had an image of Zeus that was even larger than that. And undoubtedly, he says, the throne room of Satan, the throne of Satan. Satan desired from the beginning to exalt himself above God. He wanted to be worshipped like God was worshipped. And that is the epitome of what we're seeing in all of these pagan elements. And as a result, Satan is exalted by the ability to um, show a mass of deities in one area. So undoubtedly, that is what drew God, Jesus, to call this place Satan's throne. As one wrote in his historical commentary, Pergamum was the center of idolatry. And to declare oneself a Christian who worships the one true God and Savior, Jesus Christ, would certainly provoke hostility. When we look at the Christianity displayed within these churches, often we will discover that the persecution that is leveled against them is due to the fact that they're monotheistic and will not accept a plurality of gods. A plurality of gods. And because of that, because they will not bow to the allegiance to these gods, they are marked out and they are then persecuted and often martyred for their faith. These Christians are commended for standing up against that pressure and not denying the faith. They're being commended here. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness." So that's not the problem. That's not where the compromise is occurring. They were faithful. They were willing to hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ. Antipas we know nothing about except that his name is mentioned here and here alone in the entire Bible. But I think it is fascinating. And I often wonder if this man Antipas, when he was going to his death, I ever wonder if he ever thought that anybody would ever remember him. You know, he wasn't significant in the grand scheme of things. In the entire city of Pergama, who is going to remember this one Antipas, the, the faithful witness? Who's going to remember him? And yet our God etches his name for all eternity in the word of God. And those who actually put him to death, we have no recollection of whatsoever. Isn't that amazing if you think about that in and of itself? This man alone. 
This man going and willing to die for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not with any sense of reward, not with any sense of notoriety, not with any sense of glorification of himself. And yet his name is etched in all eternity in the word of God. I think that's amazing. And the ones who carried it out, I even tried to discover who the leaders were at the time, the governors were at the time that Antipas was martyred, and I couldn't even discover their names. And yet Antipas is undoubtedly remembered for what he has done. What no one else cared to recall, our God in heaven etched for all eternity and never forgot. That's amazing to me. But as Antipas, who was killed for the faith, they stood consistent. And this word here that we have for the faithful witness, a term that was used also for Christ, is now applied to Antipas. It was used for, by, uh, for Christ in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 5, and now it is being used in conjunction with Antipas. Great company, great company to be within. I love the meaning of his name, too. Antipas means against all. I love that. This man remembered for all eternity. There is no doubt that this word martyre, the Greek word that is used here for witness, began its evolutionary process. In the time of Rome, when this word was used, it was simply used of a witness who gave verbal testimony. But as time continued, we find a progression through history where the term witness was often used by Christians for one another. And they often re- re- related and recalled and, 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 and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They uh, labeled individuals as faithful witnesses, ones who would die for the faith. This evolutionary process of the word now, when we think of a martyr, what do we think of? One who has died for a cause, a purpose, something greater than themselves, something that they had died for. But when it originally started out, it just meant one who gave verbal testimony. Now we see the incredible illustration that gives us a Faithful witness of Jesus Christ can only be one who is willing to sacrifice himself for Christ. That is, either as a living sacrifice or literally as a sacrifice. That's what it's going to take to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Paul caught upon this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and now we're seeing here through numerous examples of individuals who laid down their life in such a way. And so, Now we have the perfect illustration of a witness for Christ. And even though God approved of this action and gave them approval and accredited them for this thing, he still had a few things against him. As one wrote, the Christians at Pergamum had been true to God under severe testing, but had compromised their testimony in other ways, as seen in the next two verses. Let's move to verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, for you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we see that there is intermingled amongst this group of people, though they were willing to lay down their life for the purposes of Christ, they had in other ways compromised their witness. Now it's interesting that you may think that laying down your life is the best witness that you could ever be. But didn't Paul tell us something very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, that even if I laid down my life, but I had not love, I'm nothing. So there are things that are are just as great or just as important. And though he is commending them for laying down their life, and it's an act of loyalty, it is an act of love towards Christ, undoubtedly, there's still compromise happening within the church. There's a problem occurring. And I believe the culture itself is pressuring these Christians to do just that. You have some. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam is one of the most unique characters of the Bible. If you haven't read about Balaam, I'd encourage you to go to the book of Numbers and read the historical account for yourself concerning Balaam the prophet and his uh, being rented out to a man named Balak to come and to curse against the children of Israel. To sum it up for you, or to give you the cliff note version of it, Balaam couldn't curse the people because he could only speak that which which God would allow him to speak. Since he couldn't curse the people on behalf of Balak, but yet was still tempted by the money that Balak wanted to give him to do so, Balaam taught Balak how to overcome God's people by allowing them to intermingle amongst the pagan communities marrying the women of those communities, and then through that marriage beginning to worship pagan gods. Balaam's idea was, listen, I can't curse them, but it's more important that God curses them, and here's how you can provoke them to provoke God into cursing them. And that's what Balaam did. And he's noted throughout the New Testament. I mean, Jude talks about him, Peter talks about him. And here again, Some have adhered to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam here is used as an example and a teaching, an ideology, a theology, a doctrine, if you will. It is something that occurred uh, in history that has now been mimicked since that time. And it truly is boiled down to this intermingling. This intermingling. Because that was the sin. As the children of Israel in the book of Numbers began to marry the women of the pagan cultures, they disappointed God in that way, they disobeyed God in that way, and then they began to worship the gods of those women. And of course, fully disobeying God and then bringing idolatry into the center of the children of Israel. That's what was happening here. Think about being an individual in a city like Pergamon. It's a glorious city. 
It's known for its, you know, medical advancements. Nowhere else in the world did they have the slithering of snakes approach. It was known for its knowledge, its intellectualism, for nowhere in the world did they have a library that contained 200,000 volumes. Uh, Nowhere else in the world did they have such um, architecture to the pagan gods, the throne of Zeus, the throne of Caesar Augustus, and so forth. They were intellectually bullied into compromise. They couldn't coexist. And it appears that they often continued for social purposes, for the purposes of inclusion. They continued in the pagan traditions in addition to holding to their Christian values. And there lie the compromise. There lie the compromise. If I could give you one example today, and I think there are two examples that I could give, of the same kind of pressure that we are facing today. If you go into the city of Chicago, the downtown city of Chicago, does anyone know what Chicago is known for? It's known for a lot of things. That's a pretty open-ended question. Not only do we have beautiful architecture, not only do we have gorgeous museums, and I'm thankful for all of that, not only do we have the best pizza in the entire world, and I'm really glad about that, but we're also known for hospitals. Some of the best hospitals in the world are here in Chicago. We have some of the best libraries in the world right here in Chicago. And we are known for white-collar intellectualism uh, and international uh, development and progression. And today, the Christian community is being bullied in areas by the intellectual community, and it's it's a battle of the wills. For example... The Bible says God created all things in six days. The world says that it was an evolutionary process that took place, and it took place over millions of years. My faith is in the God who says six days. Their faith is in a million billion years. That's one area. Today, Christians want to compromise. That God didn't really mean six days. God didn't really mean that these things took place, even though they want to dismiss the theological reality that death cannot occur before sin. They want to overlook that because they don't want to be, you know, ostracized by the secular community. But there's another area too. I think the area of psychology. The area of psychology and the teaching and the wisdom of the Word of God often conflict radically. Where no longer individuals are accountable for their own actions. And sin is simply dismissed as a disorder. And no longer are we responsible for those things. Folks, we have to ask ourselves... In fact, Colossians chapter 2 tells us, let us not be deceived by the philosophies of this world. 
Let us not be cheated by the philosophies of this world. There is a wisdom that the world holds to. There is a wisdom from God that are off, they are often incompatible with one another. They're often incompatible. And in psychology's pursuit to fix the spirit of man, man, fallen man, trying to fix fallen man, is never going to bring about a pure remedy, is it? Only God can fix the spirit of man. For spirit is the word psyche. That's what it means. So psychology, psychiatrist, etc. And Christians have to work these things out for themselves. When do I succumb to the wisdom of psychology or when should I uh, 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 stick to the wisdom of God? Those are questions that you have to ask. But we can understand now why these individuals were possibly continuing in this form of compromise. Bringing then again the Nicolaitans back into the conversation as he concludes this accusation by stating in verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. A term that would have been identified and known by those who were there at that time. It was something that they could identify with. And again, as we talked about it, when we looked at the book of Ephesus, we discovered that the Nicolaitans were a sect within Christianity that was trying to pull people away from uh, moral absolutes. They were abandoning those positions of moral restrictions, moving to an antinomian position of grace, meaning that the flesh could do anything at what it wants, apart from any consequence in God. Whatever natural appetite, however it wanted to be satisfied, could be satisfied, etc. And we have writers from church history, Erigneus, uh, Hippolytus, and Clement, who all say that these Nicolaitans were distant followers of Nicholas, one of the seven chosen in the book of Acts chapter 6. In fact, Clement went on to say that the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats in the life of shameless self-indulgence. And I believe that if you look at it carefully, this very well could be the individuals that stealthily brought themselves into the church in Jude because of the um, characteristics of their doctrine, uh, the teaching of Balaam, etc., found in Jude, it could be these same groups of people that are now labeled as the Nicolaitans. That being said, as one wrote about the historical background, an individual named Ramses describes the situation both in Pergama and in Thyatira, which we'll look at in in the next couple of weeks, some of the Christians still clung to their membership of pagan associations and shared in the fellowship of the ritual meals. One goes on, D.A. Carson wrote, In Pergama, as elsewhere, teachers had entered the churches and sought to persuade the members to act freely on the acknowledged truth that Christians were no longer under the law of Moses, a concept of a permissive society that is uh, clearly not new. And then even Warren Worsby chimed in on our current role today 
Believers today also face the temptation to advance personal achievement by ungodly compromises. The name Pergamos means married, uh, reminding us that each local church is engaged to Christ and must be kept pure. That's what we see possibly happening here in Pergamos. They didn't want to lose their social standings. They didn't want to be ostracized. They didn't want to be excluded. And so they allowed themselves to continue in some of the pagan behavior, even though it was restricted and prohibited by God's word. Again, that system is completely thoroughly condemned later in the book. As one wrote, we shall see later in Revelation that this present world system is pictured as a defiled harlot, while the church is presented as a pure bride. The congregation or the individual Christian that compromises with the world just to avoid suffering or to achieve success is committing spiritual adultery and being unfaithful to the Lord. That's the compromise. Though they were willing to die for Christ, apparently they weren't willing to separate from the worldliness of their society. They wanted to continue in the paganism, possibly continuing in the pagan meals, possibly continuing in the pagan rites, which would have included sexual immorality. And this is what Christ has against them. And I wonder if that it doesn't really speak to us today where we will go to bat and we will stick up and stand up for Christ at times, but in other ways, small ways, we have succumbed to this world and the worldliness of it for personal gain, personal achievement, personal acceptance, etc. Because we don't want to be excluded from the conversation. We don't want to be looked at as naive individuals, unintellectual, non-intellectual stupid people. And so we want to compromise. We, we allow for intellectual bullying to occur in some cases without reasoning things out along with the Word of God. And therefore we compromise. So he admonishes them here in verse 16. Therefore, very simply, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The Word of God is the most precious thing that we have as a Christian in our possession. We should value it so highly. We should read it thoroughly, understand it impeccably, and we should simply, simply devour it in our lives, knowing it backwards and forwards, ups and downs, etc. We need to understand the Word of God if we are going to properly negotiate the world in which we currently live today. And if we choose not to do that, then we are going to stumble, we are going to fall. He calls on them to repent. He will come and war with them with the sword of his mouth. He who has an ear, he goes on to say, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Now it's plural in the sense of all seven of them. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except 
the one who receives it. Now we are confronted with two very interesting things here in the end. First of all, this hidden manna is speaking none other than, of course, manna that was originally given in the wilderness to the children of Israel. Later in the gospel, it is Christ himself who identifies himself as the true manna in which we should feed upon. You know, the volume of the book speaks of Jesus. But understand that in this cultural context, part of the compromise was apparently eating these meals that were sacrificed to these idols in a manner of worship. And Jesus is saying, forsake those things and allow me to give you what you really need. And that truly sums it up. So many people want to kick to the side the things of God because they would think and believe that the world has something better to offer them, and it doesn't. The world has nothing better to offer us than what Christ is able to offer us. And he is saying, come and I will give you of this hidden manna. Look at John 6 and and notice for yourself Jesus identifying himself as the true manna. And secondly, then, they are giving this white stone. Now, this is an absolute puzzlement to us today, but again, I think history clears it up for us. White stones were used in many, many, many different uh, aspects of the culture at that time. One way a white stone was used, uh, a white and a black stone was given to every jurist in every trial that took place at that time in that region. And at the end of the trial, the individual would put in a canister either the black stone for guilty or the white stone for innocent. If you are going to invite someone to come to a feast or a special gathering, of course they didn't have Evite back then. They couldn't, you know, send out a blanket email to everybody. Parchment was very expensive, and they wanted something that could be given at the door to show that you were an invited guest, and what it would be would be a stone with your name on it, a white stone with your name on it, that you gave to the individual at the door to allow you into the feast. If Jesus is using these Uh, this illustration in the same way, we quickly begin to see the value of this white stone. Remember, he came to them as a what? He came to them as a judge with the sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. The white stone would acquit them. The black stone, they would have been guilty. What is he able to give them? A white stone. Only Jesus can forgive us of our sins. Only Jesus can make us righteous. Only Jesus can save us. But it has to be personalized, doesn't it? Not only is he uh, taking care of our sin and acquitting us of our sin, but he's also inviting us to be part of his family. He's inviting us as the bride of Christ, the church, to be part of the church and part of the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. But it's a personal invitation, isn't it? 
And the stone, the white stone with the name upon it, would have personalized it. He gave it to you. He invited you. He, will, he invited you. Will you respond? I believe that is what he is trying to communicate here through these things. I will give you the hidden manna. Whatever you think these pagan gods have to offer, I do it better. That's what he's saying here. I can give you the white stone. And at that time, they would have held it and known that they were acquitted. Seeing their name on it, they they would have known that they were personally invited. I think it's fascinating when you look at it through the scope of historical facts. But there were some who compromised. Some who gave in to the pressures. Maybe you've compromised. Small ways, large ways. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to get right with God. Maybe you compromised because you wanted to advance your career. Maybe you compromised because you wanted to maintain a social status and you were willing to leave Christ behind. Maybe you compromised in those areas. God would have you repent. I want to read this paragraph to you one more time in closing this evening. Compromise involves blending the qualities of two different things or conceding principle. While believers should cooperate in society as much as they can, they must avoid any alliance, partnership, or uh, participation that may lead to immoral practices. There can be no compromise between loyalty to Christ and sinful pleasures of idol worship or sexual immorality. Christians may differ in some areas, but there is no room for heresy and moral impurity. Don't tolerate sin by bowing to the pressure to be open-minded.